Check out all our new articles and content on BrewInterview.com. Follow us on Facebook at The Brew Interview. And for some quality memes, follow us on Instagram at Brew Interview Memes. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to The Break Room. My name is Lauren Vallis. I'm a third year at UCLA, and today I'll be your host. For this episode, I'm joined by Jake Saper, a Kaufman Fellow at Emergence Capital. Jake is passionate about using machine learning to help people do their jobs better. And today, we'll be diving into the Emergence Coaching Network's thesis, which he co-developed. So without further delay, Jake Saper. Just to hop right into it, um, just to do some brief introductions, we were wondering if you could describe your story for our listeners and then, you know, talk a little bit about how you got to Emergence and where you found your love for early stage SaaS and enterprise venture funding. Sure, yeah. Um, so I, I guess to start, thank you guys again for, for hosting me. It means a lot. And Lauren, uh, I just, I, I love spending time with you. So I'm, I'm thrilled to, uh, to, to have this experience and opportunity. Um, I am a partner um, at Emergence Capital, which is an enterprise software focused venture fund based in Silicon Valley. And uh, my story starts in Austin, Texas, which is where I grew up. Um, my, uh, my parents uh, are, were and our, are entrepreneurs. They've co-founded uh, a number of startups together starting in the early 90s. Um, so I grew up kind of steeped in, uh, in startup land around the kitchen table. Um, and I've seen the ups, I've seen the downs. Uh, I have a lot of empathy from the, from the experience of the founder perspective from having been a, a basically a startup family. Um, uh, so I always knew I would do something entrepreneurial. Um, I uh, went to uh, I went to college uh, actually largely because I was excited to sing. I was an opera singer and I, I did musicals and such growing up, um, and was excited to continue to sing in college, which I did. Um, I never had the guts to try to make it professionally, unfortunately. Um, I did do it in college, but um, my first job out of college was management consulting in New York, um, which I loved. I'm a super structured thinker. Um, I really like frameworks, and uh, consulting plays very well into uh, that, that skill set and taught me how to, to sharpen it. Um, so I did that for about three and a half years, uh, at which point I knew the startup thing uh, kept kind of knocking on my door from, from my, my, my childhood. And so... Um, I left consulting and joined um, a couple of um, Indian guys who wanted to go back uh, to India and do something good for the country. Um, they had made some money on Wall Street and you know, felt an obligation to go home and try to, try to build. And um, this was in the uh, kind of mid 2000s and um, solar uh, was starting to take off in Europe in particular um, as an energy source. And um, in Europe and in the U.S., solar was being promoted as a green energy, basically a way to, you know, offset carbon and, and do good for the world. Um, in India and many emerging markets, um, there's a, simply a baseload power need. There's a gap between how much power is demanded versus how much is supplied. And so um, we actually saw the opportunity not only as one in which to do good for the world and do good for the country, but also actually provide people electricity for the first time. Um, and perhaps leapfrog some of the other forms of electricity as the company, country continues to develop. Um, so um, we set out to develop very large solar power plants in India, Africa, and the Middle East. Um, and uh, that is what we did. Um, it was a, uh, a wonderful, terrible, awesome, painful uh, experience, as basically every startup is. Um, we, uh, I moved out to Mumbai and, and, and kind of you know, helped get this thing off the ground and, and 
built the first solar power plants in places like Oman and Mauritius and other uh, far, far afield places uh, and had a wonderful life experience and worked with great people. Um, at the end of that, I, I, um, I realized that I needed to take a step back and, and understand like, is this the path I want to continue to go down or am I more interested in, um, in other, you know, entrepreneurial ventures? Um, or, you know, do I want to do something besides clean tech? Do I want to be emerging markets focused or only back in the States? Um, so I used grad school as a way to get back to the U S um, which, uh, is how I got to California. Um, so I moved out to the Bay area and, uh, pursued an MBA and this, um, masters of science and environmental resources. Um, and I had these three hypotheses I wanted to test, uh, back to the framework thinking I had these three hypotheses to figure out what I want to do with my life. Um, the first was, do I want to, uh, be the founder of something? Um, because I mentioned that there was these two gentlemen who had started the, the company I was helping to run, but they were kind of the, the founders. And I was curious to what it was like to found something myself. Um, the second was, uh, do I, uh, do I want to stay in clean tech? Um, I kind of, you know, fallen into it. I wasn't certain this was the space I want to spend my whole career. Uh, but there was a lot, a lot I loved about it. And then the last was, do I want to, uh, be an investor myself? Um, I'd helped lead our equity fundraise when I was doing the solar work. And I was curious as to what it was like to be on the other side of the table. Um, so that is, uh, I, I said about answering three, those three questions. I, um, started a company with a classmate, um, raised a little bit of money from Stanford and, and kind of had that experience and learned a ton about my own risk tolerance and, uh, and such there. I, um, I did that, that technical degree, as I mentioned, as a way to get deeper into the technical stack around clean tech. Um, and I joined a venture firm called Kleiner Perkins that was uh, doing investing in a variety of things. But in particular, I joined a fund called the Green Growth Fund that was focused on growth, uh, growth equity investing and sustainability projects and, and companies. Um, and um, I learned a ton because I had all that data, right? And ultimately, um, since this is a podcast, I won't, I won't uh, sort of try to draw out the two by two I came up with, but I came up with a two by two to help me plot all that data and figure out what do I want to do from a career perspective? How broad versus deep I want to go content wise and what's my risk tolerance how much is upside important to me you know how much agency is important to me versus uh being more passive and I concluded that um of all those various careers venture was the uh right mix of depth versus breadth of focus as well as um as well as kind of risk tolerance and agency um and that is uh that's what I pursued so um as I graduated, I joined uh, Emergence Capital, where I am today, and uh, have been lucky to grow within the firm um, ever since. So that's a somewhat long-winded answer to your question, Laura, but that's, that's kind of the path. Oh, no, yeah. And thank you for providing our listeners with that great synopsis of your life thus far. You know, <laughs> it's super helpful to hear about when you were talking about how the structured way in which you went about plotting the next course of your life, you know, how it was very intentional that you came back to the U.S. from that experience that you had. Um, you know, working at the clean tech startup because, you know, I think so often people our age are like, okay, well, where's the world going to take me? You know, like <laughs> I'm along for the ride, but it really is right. our own agency and our own decisions of what we want to pursue. So I think it's always refreshing to hear that. That is true. I, I want to make a couple caveats to it because I don't want to freak out a bunch of college students okay. because <laughs> yeah. I, I've been there and I know how um, intimidating the you know, all the various options uh, are ahead of you, particularly, you know, coming from, from a great school like UCLA. The, the question, I think, um, for, first of all, I think it's every time anyone gives you advice, there is a retroactive 
narrative that they're telling you. And I think I need to, I need to own up to that as well. How much of this I was being super conscious of in the moment versus how much it's easier for me to look back on and be like, yeah, that's, that's how I made the choice. It's now impossible for me to say, because this is the way I've thought I've reconceived of my, my past. And so uh, I'm certain that things weren't as crystal clear in the moment. For example, I know that when I was graduating from college, I did not had no idea I was going to be an enterprise software venture capitalist. Um, what I can say is that I treated my career in, um, I like to think about it in like the analogy I use is like little lily pads that are kind of like overlapping lily pads. Mm-hmm. And so the concept is, um, you know, I, I, started, um, I started in consulting and I knew I liked that from a structured thinking perspective and I wanted a little more training in business because I had a liberal arts degree. Um, and I did a bunch of energy work actually when I was in consulting. So I learned a lot about, you know, the energy space. At the end of that experience, I knew that I liked energy. I didn't love conventional energy. I was more interested in, in renewables. And I knew I wanted to do something startup-y for my past, for my parents. And so I looked for that next opportunity. I found it. And so I joined a startup doing, you know, renewable energy. Mm-hmm. And I learned a ton about that. And I, then I was curious about, you know, starting or, you know, starting a company. So I started a company doing, that was also in kind of renewable energy. And then I did the investing thing uh, with the renewable flavor. And so my, my path into investing was that overlapping lily pad with renewables. I got into renewable, I got into investing, realized I really liked investing. I didn't love the growth stage stuff I was doing and I didn't just want to focus on sustainability. And so that's how I got into becoming an enterprise software venture capitalist semester. So like the way I've thought about it is it's like these little Venn diagram lily pads that kind of overlap where there's like one thing that's common, but I'm moving closer and closer to something that I find consistent energy in. Mm-hmm. And I guess that is, that is the, um, that, that's kind of been the guiding light is this concept of what are all, if I, if I think about all the various ways in which I spend my time, what are the things I am doing that are giving me energy? And what are the things I am doing that are sucking energy away from me? And every career move I, move I have made has been an attempt towards maximizing the former and minimizing the latter. And the cool thing about getting more senior in your career is you have more agency as you go to make those choices. But the reality is even when you're younger, you have the ability to be very conscious and mindful about, hey, this thing is not giving me energy. It's actually sucking it away or this thing is. And you can start to create lists and then start to position yourself more in those directions. Um, And it's really hard to do that because you can't just like understand what your friend's doing because fundamentally they're different people and what gives them energy is going to be different from what gives you energy. But ultimately, if you can do that, and it's worth, I think it's worth the effort. To me, that's a recipe for success, not just in your career, but, you know, holistically in your life. You can use the same framework to figure out who you should marry, who you should spend time with from a friendship perspective, et cetera. Yeah, that's so true. Well, I hope all of our listeners then go through their lives after this and are like, (laughs) what's giving me energy right now? Because I I agree. I think it's a really helpful guiding principle. I keep it. I keep it. um, I'll show you. I keep it above my computer. I don't know if you can read it, but I have written on a post-it note is this giving me energy? Um, so like on my screen, I also have, what am I grateful for as the other, uh, tag, but those are the two like things I want to keep in mind as I'm doing my job all day long. So you have to constantly remind yourself of it. Definitely keeping them central. I love that. Yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. so, you know, to jump in now to what you're doing in emergence, what about working in emergence gives you energy and really? Mm. Passion? Yeah. Great question. Um, the thing I, I most derive energy from in my current job is, um, is getting to partner deeply with founders of companies over long periods of time. Um, to me, that is the thing that I most shoot out of bed excited to do. Um, I really enjoy, you know, getting to know a founder. 
understanding if, if he or she and I are a good fit to work together for a long term and, and, and whether or not our, our respective organizations are good, good fits. And then, um, and then, you know, once we dive in, figure out all the challenges that the company's facing and trying to find ways in which myself and my and, and emergence can help them solve those problems. Um, and riding the ups and downs with them. Cause you're, you're kind of, you're the way I think about it is like, you're kind of riding shotgun with the founder. Like you're not driving the car. This is back to the agency analogy, but you're in the, you're in the front seat. So like when you see a deer ahead, you're nervous um, just like the founder is. And you have some ability to, to warn him or her to swerve and do other things, but ultimately it's the driver. So you're really betting on that driver. It's important. Um, but it means that you're on this really rewarding journey. And as you go through, particularly as you go through ups and downs, um, the relationships you build can become really close, um, really meaningful, really impactful, really intimate and different than any other relationship you have in your life. Um, Cause you're kind of constantly playing different roles. You're a, you're a mentor, you're a friend, you're a peer, you're a direct report cause you serve them a lot. Uh, and sometimes you, they report to you. There's, it's kind of this co complex, rich relationship that I really value. Um, so that's the element that gives me most energy um, in my job. I also get a lot of energy from building our firm, thinking of ours, our firm as a startup and trying to find ways in which I can contribute to um, ensuring that it can be a great place to work and help our founders and, and provide uh, good returns for our investors. And so that also gives me uh, a ton of energy. So there's, there's like there, the good news is I'm at a place where um, I, I feel like I've, I've kind of been able to dial in the things that give me energy as the majority of my time. And there's still things I, I, that suck energy away from me. But um, what that means is that I, I expect that this will be the last job I ever have. Um, because I think that like, unless I can find something else that gives me more energy um, or and that I cannot, you know, push and do that within the context of, of what I'm currently doing, I think this will be what I do. That's so awesome to hear that you now recognize that at this point in your life, it, it's so fulfilling that this is like the final step. Like that's super cool. That well, I guess I, you know, I'm, I'm 36. So like I've got a lot of, hopefully, hopefully I've got life left in, in me. Um, <laughs> so who knows? Like there will be other things I do, but when I think about like, at least like this, this act of my life, like this will be the act. And then maybe I'll think about trying to sing again if I still have it in me or something else, who knows? Um, <laughs> but that's how I think about it. Yeah. Gotcha. I was going to ask, I was going to say back to singing, you know, like, <laughs> I mean, honestly, like, you know, there's probably like need for character actors who like aren't great. Used to be tenors, more like baritones now, like a little frumpy looking, like that might be a good spot for me when I'm, you know, you know, a little older. Gotcha. Well, I, I'm excited to see, but you know, <laughs> what you said earlier about, you know, how building the firm also really gives you passion and energy to dive into that a little bit more and to talk a little bit more about coaching networks. Yeah. You really contribute that to the firm's thesis. We're wondering if you'd be willing to describe it to our listeners and then I'll ask you like a bunch of follow-up questions about it. But you know, um, number one, if you'd be willing to describe it and then talking about how, you know, so many people think that AI in the workspace makes people uncomfortable. You know, they think about, oh, is AI going to be the thing that steals our jobs, you know, and yeah. things like that. Yeah. But what do you tell people to convince them that coaching networks will be a net positive and, and actually yeah. helping people be able to do their jobs better? Yeah, totally. So um, the genesis of coaching networks is, um, well, it, it really started by um, an investment we made a long time ago in a company called Chorus. Um, a lot of our a lot of our theses start by we make an investment in a company, perhaps because we're excited about the founder or we like what they're doing, 
we don't necessarily know yet that it's going to, you know, kind of become a, a larger thesis. But we made this investment in the company and we started learning, hey, there's things that this company is doing that are probably, you know, applicable beyond just this company that might actually be more of a, a movement or a shift. Um, and, uh, and, and that's certainly what's, what's happened since we made that investment uh, four or five years back. Um, but, but to describe what this concept is, um, basically, um, coaching networks in many ways are a response to um, the massive job dislocation that has started and is being accelerated by the combination of AI-driven automation as well as, uh, frankly, COVID. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think those two things are, are unfortunately going to play off of each other to accelerate job loss and dislocation uh, more quickly. So if you, if you take a step back and say, okay, we were in a situation where there was already some job loss um, as a result of, of, of automation, and we're kind of going through this you know, industrial shift. Um, what, what are we going to do with all the people that are now out of jobs and have to learn how to do new jobs? I'm of the belief that there will be um, uh, enough jobs created in the new economy to support the people that we need to employ my like there are new there are new jobs like the, the concept that like um companies hire data scientists or data analysts that didn't exist uh certainly when i was in college that wasn't a thing um and you know in 10 years there will be you know roles like that new roles that we can't think about now that exist because of, of the changes in our economy mm-hmm. to me the, the question isn't like are there gonna be enough jobs the question is how do you take someone who has been um you know driving uh you know cross-country trucks for 30 years um you know cross-country trucking is is you know something that i think could be potentially at least parts of it could be automated away in the next decade what do they do you know how do they learn how to become a data scientist or how do they learn how to sell software over zoom or how do they learn how to support you know a complex you know uh, product uh, remotely uh when they haven't trained for those skills and to me the answer is not MOOCs. Um, I don't believe that MOOCs are an effective way to learn. My, my belief is that people learn most effectively via apprenticeship. Um, I think that's how people learn best. That's how I learned how to do my job, my first job in consulting. It's, it's you know, generally you do the task and you get a bunch of feedback on, hey, you did it well, you didn't do it well, try this differently. And then you keep getting feedback until you can learn how to master the task. Uh, that's the way people learn how to like be blacksmiths, you know, back in the, in the middle ages. It's the way people have learned how to do all sorts of, of jobs today. Um, how do we create um, coaching networks is, is kind of a concept of how do we create digital apprenticeships um, mm-hmm. with the recognition that the, the scale at which we need to retrain people and the fact that they're now likely to be even more distributed than they used to be means that like classic apprenticeship models won't work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at its core, the concept is how do we leverage that same AI technology that's being used in, in some ways to create this dislocation to help address it? So the idea is a coaching network will provide real-time AI-driven guidance to a worker performing a given task. Um, And critically, learn from that worker as they try new things that the system had never seen before. And to understand, oh, actually this new thing, this new way of performing this task is actually more effective in this particular context. And then take that insight and spread it to everyone else in the network. Mm. So that, that concept of coaching networks is a real-time AI-driven coach that's learning from the people that are participating in it and then propagating the knowledge to everyone in the network. I'm happy to give some examples if it's helpful or, or I can expound on any parts. Just tell me what's useful. 
Oh, definitely. Yeah. You know, and I have some of the current coaching networks that you told me about before, you know, talking about Textio, talking about Drisky as well. How do you think that they will adapt to this new kind of like post-COVID workspace, you know, and how would you say in general coaching networks are, you know, uniquely positioned to be able to teach anyone any type of job, regardless of how digital it is in the digital space? That's a really good question. Let me start with that one. So, um, Coaching networks are most effective when they're focused narrowly on, on, on a large group of people performing at the same or a similar task, because that's the way that machines learn, right? Machines learn by watching, you know, a, a large data set that has somewhat some similarities and making correlations. That's really all machine learning is. It's a fancy word for that and then kind of creating a loop around it. Um, so you need a large enough group of people performing the same task to be able to apply a coaching network. Um, one thing that makes me more excited about the potential for coaching networks now than even three months ago is that so much of our working lives are moving to Zoom. Mm-hmm. And that means that the level of sensor data that we now have to be able to understand exactly how a person is behaving to complete a task has increased exponentially. And that's, that's fundamentally what's needed. So um, I'll give you an example of a coaching networks company that has not been built yet, but I think is now possible to build, uh, you know, now that may have been harder to build even three months ago. So I personally believe that the way that we conduct hiring interviews is broken today. So uh, I'm not sure how many interviews you've had the pleasure of participating in, Lauren, yet, but um, you will no doubt participate in, in a number over time. Uh, I guess that's how you and I originally met uh, through college interviewing, which is yeah. uh, that's interesting. Um, you know, one of the big pain points in interviewing is that there's a tremendous amount of um, of information loss. Like you come in, someone asks you about your life story, and then you go to talk to the next person in the company and you repeat the same thing over and over again. And Mm -hmm. it's not a good experience for anyone. It's a big waste of time for the company because they're getting the same information just with different people. And it's not a good experience for the candidate. In a world now where people are more comfortable hiring remotely, imagine a world where there's a coaching network built for interviewing, where the idea is you and I are having this conversation Mm -hmm. and it's being recorded as this conversation is. And it is, um, there's, a, there's a, a machine listening in on the conversation that has real-time context and can say, hey, you know, Lauren, let's say it's coaching you. And it says, hey, Lauren, um, you know, Jake's been talking now for 75% of the conversation. You should pipe up and ask this question because, you know, the, you want this balance to be in this, in, in this rate to create a podcast that gets this many clicks right? Like mm-hmm. uh, it's a little bit of a, um, yeah, I'm, I'm conflating both the podcast context and the interview context here. So it's not, not a perfect analogy, but the concept is like to back to the hiring concept. If there was a way to understand the questions that an interviewer could ask that were most effectively correlated with answers that a, a prospect or a candidate gives that are then correlated with job performance, right? You could coach someone on how to be a more effective interviewer. Mm-hmm. Uh, still encouraging them to come up with new questions all the time because ultimately humans need to push the envelope and add the creative engine to these networks. Um, but you could, you could spread information more effectively with, throughout an organization. And you could train people using software on how to be more effective at interviewing. Um, there's also a, way, a world in which it could be used to reduce bias in the interviewing process, right? If we're recording this interview, um, there's all sorts of things I, I could be doing in an unconscious way, either as the interviewee or the interviewer. And it would be useful to have all that information, correlate that with a larger data set to point out, hey, when you respond this way, um, you know, it's going to reinforce this bias or what have you. And you can, you can use the sensor data that we now have, hopefully, to help um, 
reduce bias in, in AB processes. Definitely. I think that's going to be so useful too, because, you know, and it's interesting that you mentioned, you know, the interview system and the hiring process that we have is broken today, because I can think how helpful a coaching network would be to so many students who are fresh out of undergrad and are going through all these processes, you know, for the first time. And it's really unfortunate because I feel like there's a lot of ways that interviews go and questions that are asked that kind of prevent people, or maybe they just don't know how to approach certain questions from talking about their most salient accomplishments, you know, or addressing things that would be really helpful in, in allowing them to progress in that company. So I'm excited for when that's invented. I think that'll be super helpful. God willing. I, someone's got someone's to create, maybe one of the listeners has the excitement to take this idea and actually build it. I hope so. Yeah, hopefully maybe someone in the review, like shouting for the virtual world. But <laughs> um, what do you think? So beyond, you know, utilizing this remote space, like you said, and using this sensor data, what do you think will even be later, later iterations of coaching networks? What are yeah, some totally. So, I mean, so my belief is that like, we're going to continue to have um, different form factors of technology that we continue to put on our bodies in different ways, right? So you and I are, are having this conversation over Zoom. Um, there is a future world in which, um, you know, I could be wearing glasses and having a walk and having this conversation simultaneously. And I could run into, uh, someone I know, but I can't quite remember their name. And there's a coach, you know, in the glass that says like, Oh, Hey Jake, remember it's Lauren. You guys met this context, what have you. There's obviously a privacy concern and there's lots of privacy concerns that have to be addressed there. Um, mm -hmm. and there's also been, you know, people have launched smart glasses before without, I think without the right use cases and without the technology quite being there. Um, but like, I think that my Apple watch will continue to be a coach for me. I mean, certainly it's a coach from a health perspective, but as it gets smarter, it gets more contextual data around my preferences and what I'm good at, what I'm bad at, you know, all those types of things, it's going to continue to coach me uh, and use the data it's learning from me to make the coaching it's doing for everyone else more effective. So I think this concept, um, will apply outside of just the work context, which is the one that I'm focused on investing in, but I don't think it'll apply personally as well. Um, you can imagine a world, uh, my partner Gordon is pursuing a thesis where, uh, you know, you can imagine a world where you've got classes taught over Zoom. Let's say it's a yoga class taught over Zoom. Um, and, you know, it's difficult for the yoga instructor to see everyone and understand, you know, what position are you in? But like, if you wore some sort of wearable, um, and that data could be transmitted to the teacher in real time over the, on the other end of Zoom. And a teacher could be like, oh, hey, Lauren, actually, like, your downward dog is a little bit off. Like, why don't you do it this way? Um, it gets much closer to the experience of actually being in a yoga studio. And they, maybe in some ways could actually be even better because there's more data uh, to be able to, to help coach you on how to be more effective with your downward dog. Um, so I, I think that as we get more sensor data um, through both platforms like zoom as well as the wearables that we put on our bodies um there's an opportunity to do even more effective coaching definitely yeah wow i'm excited for this day and age you know hopefully <laughs> wave really comes up because i can it's so I, I and i was talking to my other friends in the review when we were crafting the questions for this interview and we were just saying it's so refreshing to hear a perspective about how ai and coaching networks can help us live our best lives you know i mean everyone yeah. Is that that's saying around all the time, but truly maximize our potential and, you know, really kind of soak up everything that there is to be and, and grow into who we're meant to be. So I think, I think that it's a, I, thank you for saying that. I think that there is a, um, we have to be sober minded about the fact that like AI is creating a lot of job loss. Um, the way I think about it is like, there's a spectrum of job types. There's jobs that are what I call static jobs and there's jobs or tasks really that I call dynamic. 
Uh, and the concept is that static jobs or tasks are ones that have a limited data set you need to actually do the job well. The, the data set uh, stays consistent over time. Um, and there's, there's not a lot of differences in the outcomes. So things like, you know, labeling data, for example, like if I'm, if I've got a bunch of images and I need to say which tomato is right, which one's not, I have enough data from just looking at those pictures to be able to say which one's right, which one's not typically. And that is something as a result that a computer should be able to do. And that, that job is likely to be automated away over time. On the other end of things, think about hiring. Hiring, back to that analogy, is a really complex thing where there's lots of different content, contextual information. It's changing all the time. The way we communicate changes. It's unlikely that's going to be fully automated. But you could use AI to help coach or, or, or augment me in that dynamic task. Um, so it's, 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 the coaching networks is not to say that there's not going to be significant job losses as a result of AI-driven automation. There is. Mm -hmm. It is instead saying, how do we use that same technology to help upskill people to do the jobs of the future and, as you eloquently put, help them live their best lives? That's great. Yeah. And I think, oh, and it makes me really excited too when you're talking about all these populations across America whose jobs, you know, are going to be taken away, but coaching networks will allow them to then grow in other places and, and learn other skills and things like that. So excited. God willing. I hope so. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Yeah. But, yeah. So just to transition into another sort of area, I know you were talking about how coaching networks could also be used, you know, to help reduce bias in a lot of different sort of yeah. of the workplace. In talking about the future of equity in SaaS and equity in coaching networks, how do you think, you know, the imperative to create equitable and inclusive tech manifests in the SaaS space and in the coaching totally. space? Yeah, um, in a lot of important ways. So one is, um, as it applies to specifically to AI um, mm -hmm. in the, in, to, to stay on coaching networks, one of the um, real issues that has been increasingly discussed, which is a good thing, is trying to figure out how do we reduce inherent bias in AI models, right? So there's like the, there's, you know, been a bunch of really egregious examples of this, but um, there's been examples of like, you know, data sets of, of faces that were uploaded that were just Asian and white faces. And when they saw black faces, they didn't really know how to respond, responded in the wrong way. Um, and that's a function of training data, right? AI, AI models, machine learning models in particular are only, as, as good as the data that's being fed into them. And if the data itself does not, is not representative of the populations that the algorithm is meant to address, then it's, it has the potential to uh, institutionalize bias in a more, more deep way. And, and I think in a more insidious way, because it's harder to really understand, right? It's a, it's a black box. Um, so we have to be very, very cautious about the input data we are putting into these models to, to ensure that the data set is representative of the population that we want to deploy the algorithm against. Um, so that's critical. Um, I also think there's ways in which we can use algorithms explicitly um, as an end product to help reduce bias, the, the kind of unconscious or, or you know, bias that we as, as humans carry. Um, you mentioned Textio before, and I can share a little bit about what that company does. Um, Textio is, um, what we call an augmented writing company. And the concept is that um, they help whatever you need to write in business, there should be, you know, if you're writing something in business, you're generally trying to persuade someone to do something. Be that to, you know, uh, buy this product, be it to uh, click on this link, be it to um, apply to this job, whatever the thing you're trying to do is. And if you have enough data around what was written and what actually happened, you should be able to correlate those two things and help coach writers on how to be more effective at achieving whatever their end goal is. In the case of Textio, 
they, their initial focus has been in recruiting. And the concept is to, to coach people on how to write job posts and job emails uh, to more effectively target the candidates they want to tar the target. And one of the key um, insights that the, that the founder, Kieran Snyder, had was that um, there is uh, a tremendous amount of unconscious bias that goes into our writing around recruiting. Um, the words that I use to communicate about a job um, have a strong impact on who actually applies to the job. And, and, and I won't actually understand what that impact is in most cases because I have unconscious bias because I don't have the, the full context of what's going on. But just as, a, as an example, um, if I were hire, looking to hire a, a software engineer uh, in LA and I use the term, I'm looking for a coding ninja um, in the job post, the odds that I'm going to attract female applicants are very low mm. because that phrase resonates more with men. And so if your, your goal is to hire men, then you should use that. If your goal is to have more of a balanced hiring process, then it probably makes sense to change your wording. It's also the case that, that wording that the impact that wording changes over time, right? So if I use, you know, another example would be big data and that same, same concept. If I use the term, I'm looking for someone who's fluent in big data and I'm looking for a data scientist, a data analyst, um, that probably won't work as well in Silicon Valley today as it would three years ago because it's kind of a dated term. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that, like, the concept is how do you use machine learning to help not just ensure that the models we're building within machine learning aren't biased, but how do we actually enable them to uh, surface the bias that humans still have consciously or perhaps more frequently unconsciously? So I think there's a role for SaaS in helping us address those types of things. Definitely. And it's interesting that you bring that up, you know, about, like, how coaching networks and AI can not only act as, as ways that kind of highlight our most productive and, and good traits, but then also really act as critics of our most, you know, sort of, I'm trying to think of the best adjective, but traits that don't really contribute to what we're trying to do. So I really, I really see this future of walking alongside in life with my little AI coach, you know, trying to guide me to, to speak in the best way possible, speak in a very inclusive way, you know, advertise in an inclusive way. So it's, interesting to think about for sure. Awesome. How do you, in addition to coaching networks and what you're working on right now at Emergence, what are some other theses that you guys are yeah. working on, you totally. know, you're thinking about? Yeah. Um, so uh, we are uh, investors in and big supporters and believer in Zoom, mm -hmm. as, as you, you might know. And uh, we're, you know, excited to have this conversation over the platform and excited about the role it's played in connecting us through, through this, this difficult time. Um, our belief is that, um, the kind of genie is out of the bottle, so to speak, on this concept, and that many people, even when it's safe to go back to work, will continue to prefer to work remotely, or at least prefer to work remotely for part of the time. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the question in my mind is, um, what are all the things we can build on top of Zoom? How do we think about Zoom as a platform, right? So Zoom is being used in ways today, Zoom was never intended to be a dating application. Um, but I know that it's being used in some cases for that. Zoom was never intended to be a place where, you know, communities of faith could gather. But I know that my synagogue in Austin is using Zoom to transmit its you know, Shabbat services on Friday. I also know that my rabbi has happy hour with my parents and a few other people over Zoom. And so, like, people are using the product in all sorts of, of new and, and innovative ways, in ways that were never intended uh, early on. So... Zoom has, I think, a, a hope and a, a plan to become more of a platform and open source their API that allows other people to build on top of Zoom and you know, add whatever 
they need for their particular use case. Um, and if you think about it, from, like if you think about it, there's, there's basically infinite ways in which people are using this product today. How could a clever developer take that API and then you know build stuff around it to make a really good experience for people that are dating or people that are uh, you know going to to synagogue or people that are you know going to school or whatever it is. Um, and so we're pretty excited about just the ecosystem of companies that could be built on top of Zoom. It's still very early days uh, in that process, and there's still a lot to lot to go. But um, one of the great things about uh, you know, one of the hallmarks of really great software companies is they become platforms over time. Um, and if you think about um, Apple as as an example, right? Apple obviously started with killer applications. Um, you know, in this case, a lot of the hardware and some of the software applications, and then. It became a platform upon which other people have built. Google obviously is a really important platform with Android. So um, can Zoom, you know, Zoom aspire to be a, a not just an application but a platform themselves? Um, and how can we, as a firm that's been an early backer of the company and supporter of the team, continue to support them in this next kind of iteration in their lives? So that's something that that we're we're pretty jazzed about as well. Definitely. And, you know, just to share a personal story, if you'd like Please. to share how you yeah. know, Zoom has been utilized. I was telling Jonah, this whole summer, I, and I started this job in April, I have been an online Little League coach for the San Francisco Giants. And that has been Amazing. all through Zoom. So just, you know, Amazing. to add on of how it's being utilized and really, you know, the program is meant to serve, you know, underserved children across the Bay Area, across California. And so really using it as a platform of accessibility. So just something to That's hear. So you cool. Like to hear at Emergence what your work has been thank doing. You, no, th <laughs> thank you for, thank you for sharing that. It makes me really warm to hear you say that. And like, yeah, could someone build a platform that helps people do virtual literally coaching on top of Zoom? Because there's probably all sorts of software that would be helpful to help you keep track of everything within the application and everything else. And if it was all integrated, that would be a good experience for you. So maybe someone listening to this podcast will go out and build it for you. I hope so. Yeah, I'll work with them, you know. <laughs> But, yeah. you know, just as, and I know, thank you so much for giving us so much time. As totally, a totally. last question, you know, yeah. what do you think the future of venture capital looks like? The future of SaaS, the future of everything that you're working on, what do you think <laughs> to you? And then if you also have any advice for recent graduates, that'd be awesome. <laughs> sure, yeah. Um, so the future. Um, I would say that, like, if anything, the past three months with the Black Lives Matter movement and with um, COVID, um, I think that the impact that has had on me personally is to question a lot of the assumptions that I've had. Um, and some of them are assumptions like, um, so, some of them are assumptions around like where I should live, right? Mm -hmm. In a world where, um, you know, remote work is, is perhaps the default um, and the in-office is a little bit more of the exception, particularly in tech, um, I can rethink a lot of the way my life works. Um, and that, that's really freeing. And that's not something I've never, I've really even thought about before. Um, and I can start to think about like, I want to solve my, 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 where I want to root myself is more about perhaps a community that I want to spend time with and less about the job I want. Um, which I think is a really exciting concept. And I think applies to college students as well. I think people College students have often been drawn to cities because that's where the jobs are, which also means that's where other people are, which creates this really cool social energy. But imagine a world where like jobs aren't necessarily in those cities anymore. They don't have to be. Could you instead, you know, move with a bunch of your friends to rural Montana and live, you know, some sort of commune style life while you still have these fancy tech jobs? Like maybe. Um, and would that be a happier version of life than paying 
insane amount to live in San Francisco in a tiny apartment, maybe. Um, so I think there's just a bunch of assumptions that need to be questioned, which is kind of an exciting and somewhat scary time. Um, you know, on a personal level, I think there's also a bunch of assumptions that I've been questioning around my own privilege, um, to be honest with you, and thinking about um, the ways in which that's shown up in the world and what I could do to be uh, more effective at, at helping kind of share some of that privilege with people who haven't had it by luck of birth. Um, so that's, that's kind of how I think about the future. It's kind of this big question mark of a time. It, there has never been more uncertainty about the future in my mind, in my adult life than there is right now, um, which creates opportunity, right? As a VC, that's exciting because it means there's new opportunities. As a, as a college graduate, it's a obviously deeply scary time and also hopefully a deeply exciting time because a lot of the old assumptions that they, they had may not need to be true anymore. It may not be the case that like you have to go to New York, San Francisco and whatever other major metro to like get your career started, um, which I think is really freeing and hopefully will actually open up access to these career paths to people who couldn't afford to make those moves uh, before. So I'm hopeful that there will be um, more diversity. Um, and I mean that in every sense of that word um, in uh in in finance and technology and medicine other other professions where um the, the events of of the past few months i think will fundamentally for for a whole variety of reasons that are all kind of coming together and converging um are are hopeful to are hopefully going to make that happen um so the advice so from an advice perspective that's a long way of answering that question but from an advice perspective um i would um i would encourage people graduating to continue to question assumptions. I think one of the, well, actually one of the coolest parts about being a college graduate is that many of the assumptions of adult life you have not assumed yet, right? There's like this beautiful questioning um, energy that particularly some of the best liberal arts institutions instill within you. Um, and if you can continue that approach of just being like, hey, why is that this way? you're going to you're going to both like question the assumptions that maybe don't have a good reason for holding anymore in the world and be part of the change and then back to the, the advice i gave at the very beginning you're also more likely to find a path that gives you energy if you are questioning the choices you're making versus just being a lemming and following whatever past hurt has existed um, you're more likely to come up with a solution that is authentic to you and so as scary as a time it is, I think it's also easier to, um, to, to ask those hard questions about yourself and, um, and about the way society operates and hopefully land yourself in society in a place that's a better place to, to live your life. Well, thank you for ending on such a positive and optimistic and really change-driven note. I, I'm so excited to hear those words. You know, and I, I agree. I think that Gen Z right now, or you know, everyone who's graduating is really well positioned to remake this new world. So, thank you for your time, Jake. Thank you for of everything. Course. There. I'm so excited for the world that you've painted today with your words. So, well, I paint it with the words, but the reality is, you and, and, and the people listening to this are going to be people who actually build it. And so, um, <laughs> I have the easy job of just talking, you guys have to go do. So, um, Godspeed in that process. I'm excited to get started. Yeah, needs people like you, Lauren.